Hi, my name is Ray Youssef, CEO and co-founder of Paxful, a peer-to-peer -peer financial marketplace. Welcome to the African Tech Roundup, Ray. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I love South Africa. I'll bet you do. I mean, the numbers certainly suggest you have good reason. Yeah, Joburg is an amazing city, I have to say. I've met only amazing people here, had amazing food, and I can't wait to see what's outside of the city as well. Well, let's start with um, having you unpack what it is Paxful does. Um, you're obviously in the, the blockchain space, Bitcoin specific, um, but just unpack, you know, to, in some detail what your company exists to do, what you're solving for, and most importantly to me, how it is you guys make money. So Paxful started about uh, three and a half years ago when I met this Estonian guy in New York City at my very first Bitcoin meetup, right? We came fast friends. We tried something. It didn't work. Uh, we ended up homeless on the streets together. And a friend of mine told me that, hey, you can uh, sell Bitcoin and for gift cards and make like a 100% profit. And I was like, what? This sounds like a scam. But I was desperate. So I tried it and it worked. I was like, hey, let's do this and let's scale it up. And all of a sudden, it worked. We weren't homeless anymore, right? And then Paxful was born. So Paxful started as a place where you could basically leverage arbitrage opportunities, right? And we really focused on gift cards because it was a way to basically make crypto uh, accessible to every retail economy or the major retail economies of the world. And then from there, a lot of amazing things happened. Uh, there's 40 million unbanked people in the United States. This shocked us. And all of a sudden, one day, they started calling my cell phone because my number was on the website. No one ever called before, but this website in America, very popular, second biggest classified ad site in the world, lost their Visa and MasterCard merchant account. And when an American e-commerce site loses their ability to accept Visa and MasterCard, they're dead, right? So all they could do was accept Bitcoin. So all of a sudden, I had all, these, all their customers, like normal working class people, no tech skills, no crypto experience at all calling us and wanting to know about this Bidicon, Bidicoon, Bidicon, whatever, they couldn't even pronounce the name. So we got really good at showing how normal people without a bank account could acquire Bitcoin. And it was a source of huge relief for these people, right? Because we actually made it simple and usable for the mainstream. That's really how Paxful was born. So Paxful basically is three things. It's a listing service like eBay. It's an escrow service, kind of like PayPal and how it worked with eBay in the beginning. And it's a cryptocurrency wallet, a Bitcoin wallet, right? Those three things combined basically create a kind of peer-to-peer -peer financial marketplace. It's kind of like the Uber for money. So we make our money by charging a 1% escrow fee. So the person that has the Bitcoin that wants to exchange it for something else, whether it's a gift card, cash, in any form of uh, you know denomination or currency, PayPal, whatever it might be, they pay us 1% fee for the escrow service and any potential moderation services as well. So what we've learned is that... Uh, the way people started using it, we had no idea. Like, it was amazing. We couldn't see it coming. But what's, what we've learned, the main thing is that there's actually seven true use cases of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. In the West, all we think about Bitcoin, when we hear Bitcoin, we think about gray markets like Silk Road and speculation. Like, you know, what's happening on exchanges, all that manipulation, etc. But no one ever talks about the five other true use cases. And we can get into that, and I'll give you specific examples. But that's been the journey so far. I definitely want us to talk about that because I do sense that the initial hype around crypto has been the space race to try and capture value, which I think has been largely damaging to the, you know, has I think produced some of the worst PR for the, for the technology, um, you know, for crypto itself and you sort of related technologies. What's your take on someone listening to us right now who might be in a position to replicate your success, i.e. throw a lot of money at creating an overnight competitor to what you do? What's your sense of the true advantages to the first movers in the space? And what's the space race you're in right now? So the huge mover, the first mover adventure advantage is a huge advantage, especially in the peer-to-peer -peer marketplace side, right? Because the network effect is massive. So Paxel is a listing service, escrow service, and a wallet. And it's not the first one. It's actually the second one. The first one was local Bitcoins, right? And they started about seven years ago, right? And they're a very good service, right? They do what they do very well. Uh, they're not really very engaged much in the scene. Like, they don't even show up to work anymore. Those guys are like billionaires now. They did great. And, but it's still going. You know, they've got a, like a good skeleton crew running there. But they don't really interact with the communities that they work in. But people use them because they work very well, right? And they really focus well on banking. So 
uh, give you an example. Uh, local Bitcoins does about four times more volume than we do, but we do about maybe 10 times more transactions by sheer number than they do because we do about anywhere from 40 to 60,000 transactions a day. And the average volume of those, the average is, like, is $2.50. So you can really see we focus on the unbanked and small amounts, right? You know, like people in the emerging economies. That's why we do four times less volume, but maybe 10 times more transactions. We do more transactions than every other peer-to-peer -peer marketplace in the world combined, right? So in that sense, we're a leader. And we will be scaling up our banking infrastructure as well because the only way we can really win in this system, and by win I mean the entire uh, space, right? The only way the space can win is by connecting the unbanked to the banked and creating this uh, people's financial system that's safe and open, right? That anyone can use. So the first mover advantage is pretty, is pretty big. And now it can be overcome with good customer support, right? We have 24-7 support. It's the, we're the only crypto company in the world that has 24-7 support, right? We have about 50 people in our company to support. Over half the company does support. We also have VIP support for our star and power uh, vendors and traders. And I, myself, am in every VIP support chat room. I do customer support at least a couple times every week because I really want to understand people's problems, people's pains, and what they're trying to do. So customer service is huge, especially in this business. Because think about what we're doing. We're giving people the ability to run their own money services business. And in the money services business, it's all about customer support, right? That's how the banks started out. They were all about great customer support. Now they don't give a damn at all, right? So here we are offering great customer support. And here you are, whoever's listening right now, I understand, especially in Africa, that when people hear about cryptocurrency, they only think about mining scams, day trading, which is in itself a scam for like a newbie player, especially. Or oh, I can do this myself. Why should I invest in the next round of Paxful? I could do this myself. I guess that's the part of the question you haven't answered yet to me. Yeah, well, Paxful is not taking any uh, funding. We're completely bootstrapped, so we, we don't you know, need anyone's uh, funding right now. However, why should you get on Paxful and make an offer? And when you do make an offer and you start trading on Paxful, you are investing in the ecosystem and in the marketplace, right? So that's something that we need as a, as a market. We need vendors. Like, for example, on Paxful right now, uh, I put up an offer to sell uh, Bitcoin for South African Rand. Seven people hit, hit me up my offer within like an hour, right? So there's a lot of buyers on there. So if you get on there and you put up an offer for South African Rand at 3 4 5%, you can make that kind of profit selling Bitcoin for South African Rand to the bank, etc. Or uh, it was another payment method. I forgot what exactly what it was. But there's a huge opportunity right now to make profit. So you can do it on Paxful, test it out, see if it works. And then if you really want to start your own peer-to-peer -peer financial services, focus here on South Africa, we encourage you to do so. Because peer-to-peer -peer finance is really where this space is created for, right? It wasn't created for speculation. It wasn't created to give a new asset clash to the rich, right? They already have enough asset classes to play with, right? The original mission of Bitcoin was to help the little guy. And peer-to-peer -peer finance, these marketplaces, is exactly how we're going to do that. So clarify in the minds of someone listening right now who doesn't quite see the difference between what it is you've described and perhaps um, local you know, wallet services like Luno or you know, BitPesa that are out there, and certainly Binance who are here now uh, trying to massage or create their own communities. Perhaps roadmap-wise, trying to work their way into something you already are, give us a sense of the landscape around who does what and, and perhaps how you frame competition in your world. Okay, so let's talk about the uh, exchanges like Binance, Bitfinex, Luno, etc., right? So there's some differences. Binance doesn't have any fiat gateways. They only let you trade Bitcoin for other cryptocurrencies. So it's basically a place where you can trade other crypto for other crypto, right? Places like Luno allow you to trade fiat via a, your bank for cryptocurrencies buying and selling, right? And that's very useful. Places like Paxful, we don't have any bank accounts, right, at all. We don't have any accounts of any kind. We don't even have any Bitcoin. We just connect you with other people that want to exchange whatever for Bitcoin, whether it's uh, other cryptocurrencies, whether it's gift cards, whether it's cash, whether it's the shoes that you're wearing, whether it's goods and services, anything can be exchanged to Bitcoin and Bitcoin can be exchanged to anything else. So what that basically allows you to do that other services cannot do, it allows you to create a universal translator for money, right? So here's an example someone who's unbanked in America and the 40 million unbanked peoples in America, right? 
they can go to the drugstore in America and buy a gift card, like an Amazon, iTunes, Walmart gift card, right? They can go to Paxful and they can put that into Paxful, find someone that wants their gift card and will give them Bitcoin, they put in the code, boom, they get Bitcoin to their wallet. And then from there, they can take that Bitcoin and they can sell it to someone in Cambodia for a cash deposit or giving them, dropping off cash to their, their son or their family traveling Cambodia that might need it, right? Or they can turn that gift card into another gift card, like an Xbox gift card in the UK or a PayPal deposit in uh, Sweden any for, or cash in a bank account anywhere in the world. Any form of money can become any other form of money. That's what peer-to-peer -peer finance allows us to do. And that, when you think about what that actually allows people to do, it, allow, it gives people a global financial passport. So even if you don't have a bank account and you're out in the middle of nowhere, as long as you can get value into Paxful, we support 300 different payment methods through our peer-to-peer -peer network. That Does that include other crypto? Yes. I believe we support the top 50 cryptocurrencies as well, but mostly it's a fiat gateway right now. Those other payment methods will grow. But so basically that allows someone with no bank account anywhere in the world to access every financial network in the world. Humanity has never had anything like this. I mean, the only thing that's come close are peer-to-peer -peer structures like uh, Hawala and Hundi, etc., right? Which are peer-to-peer -peer financial structures that people just innovated on themselves based on trust relationships they had with their families or friends or people around the world, and they would settle up later. But with peer-to-peer -peer finance, with Bitcoin, the peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash, we give people those magical friends everywhere in the world. Let's talk about trust because um, there are some outfits out there solving for the trust problem by tokenizing and, and creating a, a walled garden for what you've described to happen within so that you can have a sense of comfort in, in knowing that you know, everything's happening within this walled garden that's, I suppose, not underwritten, but I suppose vetted by whoever you trust and therefore you know, holding a coin in X and, and sort of trading within that ecosystem or doing whatever else you want to do within that ecosystem feels safe and trustworthy and something that will be here in another 15 years and, and not something that will, you know, leave you sorry you participated. How is Paxful solving for the trust problem, which I think is central to what probably keeps up most central bank uh, governors at, up at night? But there's some people who have genuine worries about the, you know, the dilution of trust or the lack of it and, and perhaps the breach of trust that has been so rampant in the space. How are you solving for that? Okay. Well, first, uh, Paxful has an entire uh, group of payment methods we call online wallets, right? And that's where all the walled gardens are. Like So PayPal is an example of one of these walled gardens. Revolut, Venmo, Google Wallet, M-Pesa, Mobile Money, etc. And we support all those payment methods, over 60. So uh, any of those payment methods go under the umbrella of peer-to-peer -peer finance. And basically, we can support them. Any like Bitcoin can become any of those, can go into any of those walled gardens, and money from those walled gardens can come out as Bitcoin through this peer-to-peer -peer financial marketplace. So this is an amazing thing, right? Because we give liquidity between all these walled gardens. We give you a way to get money from one walled garden into another walled garden, right? That's the beauty of this entire system, right? So it's actually a brilliant showcase for the fluidity and power of peer-to-peer -peer finance. Now, that's awesome, right? But let's talk about the dark side peer-to-peer -peer finance, right? It's not all roses, right? You think about what we've done. We've basically given the world banking, global banking, without identity. So if you think about that, why is that bad? Or potentially dangerous. Exactly. Because the mission is to make an open and safe financial system, right? So think about it as terms of a market, like just free market economics, right? Someone in India who makes maybe $200 a year, it's absolutely worth it in their time to try to scam you out of $10, right? And spend an entire week trying to do that. Because it's worth their time to do so, right? So now that you've opened up banking to everyone, including that guy, how do you protect everyone? How do you make sure it's safe, right? Now, it's, there's an added dynamic here. So Bitcoin is irreversible. It's like cash. Once you get someone's Bitcoin, you can't take it back. But every form of fiat in the world with enough political will is reversible. So the guy with the Bitcoin is always in danger. So it's very safe to buy Bitcoin on peer-to-peer -peer financial marketplaces or Paxful, but it's the people that are making the market, that are selling the Bitcoin, that are always in danger, which is why they have to watch out for things, but it's also why there's huge profits to be made. Like, for example, the average margin for PayPal, selling Bitcoin with PayPal is 30%. So guys make 30% profit, and people are willing to pay it because they can get Bitcoin instantly with their PayPal account, right? It's very convenient. Now, those vendors, if you talk to them and you ask them, 
okay, why, like, why is it 30%? What do you do? He's like, well, PayPal is very easy to charge back, right? They always take the side of the sender, right? So what the guys will do is first they'll make sure that it's not a hacker that stole someone's PayPal account. And if they make a mistake, of course, it's on them. Exactly, right? And so they'll make sure it's not a hacker that stole their account. They'll ask for ID. Sometimes some hacker will even get someone's ID as well. So they'll even ask for a selfie, right? They might even ask for a selfie with a timestamp, etc. So basically, you will, in peer-to-peer -peer finance, depending on the payment method that you're using, you have to know all the ins and outs of that payment method. Like, for example, M-Pesa. There's a three-hour or two-hour window to call up and charge back, and you have to be cognizant of that as a vendor. But once you know that, once you know the ins and outs of your payment method, the risks and rewards, you can make a killing. Uh, but it's not, it's, it's, it's a business, right? You're running a business with risks, rewards, and profit motive. It's like selling lemonade in the street. It's not like uh, buying mining equipment or, no, sorry, renting mining space on a server somewhere, which is always a scam. The dynamics are always against you. And I'll say this again to all the Africans listening. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of predators out there. Do not invest in mining scams. If you're going to do a mining operation, you must buy your own hardware and run it yourself. Or you can forget all that and you can forget about trading on the uh, altcoin casinos, etc. And you can get into peer-to-peer -peer finance. You can find an awesome trade route that you know that makes sense for you, that you can scale up. And you can build a business off of that. I just got back from Ghana and I met a guy who was unemployed. Now he's got five employees because he's uh, figured out how to make money on Paxful with gift cards. And it's possible with any form of payment. There's over 300 forms of payment. 300 ways can become Bitcoin. And Bitcoin can be converted into 300 different forms of payment. And all sorts of inefficiencies to milk. Exactly. It's an arbitrage marketplace. And depending on which combination of uh, you know, trade routes you're using or payment methods you're connecting, there's huge profits to be made. And so the fact is the everyday African, assuming that person's already dabbling in this world, chances are very good that they are not well equipped to to vet the risks involved. In which case, my question to you is, how much of that responsibility do you take on as a business? And how much of it do you fully expect people who, who use your platforms to, to be knowledgeable and aware of what's, what could potentially go wrong? We have a channel called Paxful School where we put up all these videos and uh, it's been about around for about a year. We have each video has like 10, 20,000 views, which is absolutely astronomical, actually. So people are actually actively seeking out this content. They want to understand how they can make, build a business on this. Right. And that's essentially what Paxful allows you to do. You're allowed to build your own uh, financial services business. Right. You are basically running a financial services business. But. You know, it's all about customer service and it's all about the risks and rewards, right? Like the payment method that you're using. What are the risks of this payment method? How easy is it to get charged back on this payment method? What do you have to watch out for? So we are making a huge uh, educational initiative, especially in Africa. We'll be planning a tour, speaking at um, universities all around Africa. We're scaling up our entire Paxful school, not just to make more and better videos, but we're launching a Paxful Angels program where we'll basically sponsor and uh, create this kind of uh, grassroots networks of educators to, to actually show people how they can actually start their own businesses on Paxful because we're really fighting a war, you know, we're fighting a war against an army of scammers, right? And the scammers will always be there in your face. They'll be very charismatic. They've got their pitch down. They know exactly where to be and they where to position themselves to get the most virgin ears. And once they find you, they're going to keep going, right? So we have to actually beat them to the punch. So we're beginning to see that we can't just be passive with our educational efforts. We must be active with our educational efforts. We must seek out the end user. We must go and find them where they are because that's the only way we're going to win this one. By we, I mean the people, you know, the people that, that benefit the most from having a, a true open and safe financial system, right? So listeners of this podcast will know that I have very conservative views around uh, the notion of VC and frankly, just how to execute properly on early stage investments, not just on, on the continent, but everywhere. And it's a big debate at the moment. I do feel, though, that um, the space you are in is one of the places I'm willing to give a pass to, to hyper bullishness around backing a, a massive bullish move towards growth or attraction, however it's defined, provided that you have identified a legitimate sort of area of, of value um, and of course, all of this is subjective. But I suppose I say this 
because to be honest, I mean, you said you were, you guys are bootstrapped. That gives me concerns because I mean, <laughs> uh, I feel like in order to provide a, a platform that's really shored up and, and secure that people can trust in, um, I think you need really, really big bucks to sort of back those ideas. So my question to you is how are you doing that as a bootstrapped outfit or are you a billionaire in disguise? How is this all happening? How are you scaling all these activities? How are you funding this whole um, initiative around uh, education? How is this all going to happen on a bootstrap budget? It's a great question. Um, I don't really have an answer for you there. I'm kind of amazed we've made it this far <laughs> myself. We have 110 employees in four offices around the world. And we're not some uh, super brilliant managers, right? We're just normal guys. But I have quite about 15 years of experience in the startup scene. I had uh, two really big successes for my first startups, and then I had 11 failures in a row. And here I am with Paxful, right? I learned quite a few things there. So what we're really good at is product, right? We're really good at figuring out what the you know, what what exactly a product has to do to help people solve real problems, right? And it's all about that, solving real problems for people. So look at what Paxwell has done in 2018. 2018, you saw massive layoffs in cryptocurrency, consensus, Bitmain laying off 85% of their staff, you know, companies just disappearing. And that all happened because, you know, 2017, you had all this money coming in, these ICOs, which all like 99.9% .9 of them turned out to be scams that were just taking money away from the early adopters and to all these scammers that came in. I remember I had like 10,000 friend requests on LinkedIn a day from people that were all of a sudden blockchain experts, right? So 2018, Paxwell didn't lay off anyone. We hired about 40 new people. We opened up two new offices and uh, we grew 130%. And the reason that's happening is because we're focused on true use cases, not speculation, right? We're not an altcoin casino, right, that's hoping to make money off people just throwing their money away on trading whatever for whatever, right? That's not what we're about. The reason we're growing is we're solving real problems for real people on a day-to-day -day basis. And everything that we do comes back to that. Our, is, is, is what I'm doing today from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep, has it made a difference, a day-to-day -day difference in the lives of some normal human being somewhere around the world? If yes, then the day has been success. And this is what every politician should be thinking about and judging their success on, but they don't care about that at all, right? So it's up to us to do that. The same thing, it's up to, it really should have been the United Nations that's given everyone a global financial passport. And that would have like liberated, done more to liberate humanity than anything else, right? But they're never gonna do that, so here are we. And as far as how we've done this on a bootstrap budget, I really wish I could say, but we're... I mean, I'll tell you straight up. I mean, on paper, before I met you, uh, and the reason I, I was keen to do this interview is because on paper, you represent everything I like to see in how startups should sustainably uh, chase growth, sustainability, and, and profitability, right? On paper. Um, and I suppose I'd feel safer on the trust side of things if I knew there was like a billion dollars of underwriting that backed this idea. And how do you set me at ease around that? Well, the truth is uh, we, you know, our cash flow is pretty good. You know, we're doing all right there, but that's not the bottleneck, it's not money. It's people, it's finding the right people to lead this. Because it's, it's very difficult to find the people that are gonna do this. But think about what we're doing. We're trying to build a safe and open financial system for the entire world, right? This is actually the greatest task of the 21st century, right? It's something that, no other company, no other organization has been able to do, right? We need people that believe in the original mission, right? People that are really good-hearted, people that are great communicators, people that believe in the original mission of Bitcoin, people that are not getting distracted by all the easy money to be made in speculation, etc. So this is actually our greatest challenge is to find these people. But we have been blessed. We have an amazing core team. We all trust each other. We're like a family. And that really is the best thing about this Paxful. It's the team that we put together, right? People that actually trust each other with our lives. Like I trust my co-founder, Artur, with my life. The guy's not only a genius, one of the hardest working people I know, he's also one of the best human beings I ever met. And that's saying a lot, because there are some pretty corrupt characters in this space still. And so my question to you would then be, um, what do you make of people who are turning this whole idea, this noble ideal into a zero-sum game and and do you buy into that and if so to what extent it's unfortunate there's a lot of really corrupt characters in crypto and uh some of them have i'm speaking about people in your position as well who are actively sort of taking on 
increasingly higher and higher rounds of investment, presumably because they envisage a one man, a one woman standing at the end of the day, as opposed to a sort of network of symbiosis, if you understand what I mean. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, so their basic stance is not generative. It's cannibalistic, right? And that's why they see it as a zero-sum game. Our stance is generative. The only way peer-to-peer finance works is with this human layer, right? We have this blockchain, right, which is this cryptocurrency layer and manifested in the Bitcoin blockchain, right? Peer-to-peer electronic cash. But it would not work without this human layer of people, right? And that only works through education, educating these people. Like, uh, and then they start educating other people. They start evangelizing, right? Growing this layer of people is the hardest thing there is, right? Because in any new market, the first thing we need to do is like, okay, people get interested about Bitcoin in South Africa, right? They want to go there, they want to get Bitcoin. Who's going to sell the Bitcoin to them, right? So we have to train people about what Bitcoin is, show them how to get Bitcoin, right? Show them how to actually sell the Bitcoin without uh, you know, bringing up too much risk to themselves, right? Teach them how to build a business around this. This is extremely challenging, right? Uh, a lot of companies... Um, Coinbase, for one, has decided to take about $100 million from all kinds of people, Goldman Sachs, etc. And they've done a great job growing a company. They've done an awesome job with compliance. I really respect them for that. Uh, they just added Ripple to their platform. And uh, they're going to be adding pretty much every coin they can because they have to sustain this burn rate, right? And the only way they can do that through the speculation vertical is by basically turning themselves into an altcoin casino, right? And that's unfortunate because that's toxic. That's not going to be able to sustain this ecosystem, and that hurts us all. Right? Well, what we're doing is we are focused on slow, steady growth, true organic growth, true generative growth on a grassroots level. And we're going to take our time to do that. But we're beginning to understand that, you know, that we have to be a lot more forward right now. We can't just stay in our you know, offices and focus on product and listen to our customers all day. We have to actually go out there, hit the ground, and start educating people. So you guys are going to be seeing a lot more about Paxful. We're going to be on the ground. We're going to be in your universities. We're going to be in your face. And we're going to be pre- preaching the gospel to people because it's absolutely something that we must do now. What numbers can you share? I mean, you're a private company. You haven't, uh, you know, taken on investment. So there's very little we can know for certain around, like, what kind of monies you're making, what you're netting, and, and what you're burning. What are you able to tell us about that to give us a sense of, you know, the size and scale of this business, how fast it's growing? Uh, what are you able to say? As far as I, what I can share is, okay, we have four offices. We have about 110 employees. We're, we're thinking about growing to about 250 uh, people around the world this year and starting maybe at least one office in Africa. Uh, potentially, we'd like to have three offices in Africa. Maybe we'd also like to have an office in uh, Latin America, perhaps Colombia as well. We're not certain yet, but we're doing this because we focus on real growth, right? So what our burn rate is, I'm not sure. Uh, we, you know, we're pretty uh, pretty lean focus company. You know, we don't... Uh, I don't have a car. I don't have a house. I'm a normal guy. We just focus on product, you know. Uh, for the 12-hour flights, I would like to fly business class, right? Um, for the six foot four, right? But that's pretty much it. So we're very lean, right? I was homeless four years ago, right? So, you know, I haven't forgotten where I've come from, right? And things are looking pretty good re- relative to that, right? Yeah, we're not starving, right? And the best part is we're able to build, Right? We don't have to ask for anyone's permission to build. We don't have to go to a board of venture capitalists. They're going to tell us, no, you can't build this school in Rwanda because it's not going to give you any profits right now. Or wait to build schools until you know, you're know you bringing in a billion dollars of revenue. And, you know, we're like, no, we want to build schools right now, so we're going to do it. And I'm going to take time out of my day. I actually went to Rwanda three times myself, donated six figures of my own money, which is a lot of money for a guy like me. I'm not some you know multimillionaire, right? So... The best part about it is the freedom, right? Uh, freedom is an awesome thing because, you know, we still, we're all over three years old right now, so we're not technically a startup, but we still have the startup mindset. And that just, it's just kind of a miraculous thing. I don't know. I wish I had a, maybe like five years from now, and <laughs> I'll be able to better explain how this was done. But right now, it's just, we're just going. So I'm, I've pulled up a, a Coindesk article, which uh, references some numbers. And yes, yeah, so I'm going to read them for what it's worth. It says that Paxful increased its, track, uh, its transaction volume by 130% since January uh, 2018, uh, with an average of $21 million a week compared to $8.5 million um, over the same period, uh, ending 2017. And uh, here's what I'm interested in referencing 
um, to set up the next question I'm going to ask. It says that your growth was driven in part by Paxful's user base, almost tripling in Ghana, um, with something like 41,243 accounts, and more than doubling in Nigeria to 321,476 accounts. And according to this article, 41% of all Paxful's uh, new users in 2018 were Bitcoin traders um, on the African continent, which kind of explains why you're here, right? So (laughs) firstly, if there's anything wrong with what I read um, or terribly erroneous, this is your opportunity to set this record straight. Um, Number one. Number two, I've given our audience some idea of why you're spending so much time here and maybe you can flesh out the rest. Africa is a growth region. Nigeria and Ghana being your, your sort of top leads and South Africa looking really interesting to you. Flesh it out for me. All right. So first thing is uh, about myself. I'm not really a bean counter type CEO. I'm not good with numbers and spreadsheets. You know, I'm that guy that just like doing customer support all day, talking to people. Like I would, like I get on customer support and I talk to people. And one guy from Nigeria hits me up and he's like, "Hey, I want to buy an iPhone X." I'm like, "Okay, yeah, but this is a place for Bitcoin." And he's like, "Yeah, but I want to, I want to buy an iPhone, but I can't buy it with my Visa card because they limit us to a thousand. Like he said, they limited." average Nigerians to $100 a month they can spend online with their Visa or MasterCard. He got the limit moved to 1000 and but it still wasn't enough to buy an iPhone X. So I figured out a way for him to actually use an Alipay account, sell his Bitcoins to some guy in China. He sent him $1,100 worth of Alipay. And there he bought the iPhone X from AliExpress, right? So I like solving problems. That's the kind of guy I am. These numbers don't really mean too much to me because... Uh, they really don't mean much at all because we're just getting started. Peer-to-peer finance, right? What this actually is, it's about a lot more than just buying and selling Bitcoin. It's a framework that we're giving people to do anything they want with their money. Like our slogan is your money, your way. No borders, no obstacles, safety, right? So the numbers don't really mean too much to me. It's all about the people. Like look at Nigeria, right? So I went to Nigeria. It's an amazing place. It has some of the most entrepreneurial, resourceful people I think I've ever met in my life. Nigerians are amazing, right? They will find a way to do something, right? And there's a huge unemployment problem over there, right? The youth, there's so many young people there, and there's so much unemployment. And that's something we see all throughout Africa. So basically, I spent a good portion of my time as a CEO doing business development and customer support online, talking to people from Nigeria, talking to students, figuring out all the limitations and obstacles there, and actually like sitting down, showing people how to trade Bitcoin, investing in them, and I didn't think anything of it, and then I look back and like three months later and this market has exploded, right? The Nigerian people just took that little lead on like three months of my time and just ran with it and just created something amazing. And I'm looking at that, I'm like, wow, like, Africa is amazing. Like, they're capable of doing this. Why didn't this happen before? It didn't happen before because they did not have an open and safe financial system. When you look at Africa, it's a really a miracle that Africans aren't extinct considering how closed in and how uh, oppressive the financial system is over here. I was in New York City, right, and I was in a cab. And there's one cab driver from Senegal. He's actually had a PhD, this guy. And he started telling me that... Senegal, Ivory Coast, Burkina Faso, Mali, and uh, I think uh, one other country, they're all bordering each other. They all have the franc. They use the franc, right? And they don't even print the franc in those countries. They have it printed for them in Paris. They charge them a fee. They send it over there. And they even limit the amount of francs they can actually buy each year. And to even make matters worse, they each use a different version of the franc, so they can't even trade amongst each other. Think about that. The level of balkanization and financial oppression that Africans have had to deal with for the past 400 years. Now we actually have a way to give people a way out where they can actually reach out and access every single financial network in the world. That is the greatest opportunity of the 21st century. And Africa is poised beyond any other like emerging market economy to take full advantage of that. So I'll bite. I'll bite. I, I buy into what you're saying here. And let's assume for a second that, you know, and there's a massive sort of generalization to make given what I know the realities are on the ground in most in many African countries Um, let's assume you know the central bank governor in country X on the continent is really 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 concerned to solve for the issues that you've just outlined really articulately please give that person some guidelines on how to view or treat the growing trend towards the use of crypto in general and of course peer-to-peer trade as you guys are enabling it right now. 
And by the way, shout out to Rochelle Vallab, good friend of the show. He um, shared some questions with me that he wanted me to ask you. And, and the reason I asked him is because it's thanks to me that uh, he's now... Uh, you know, the notion of sort of blockchain tech and distributed ledger technologies and, and crypto, those notions are starting to grow on him. And he's a very conservative investor, a former Bain consultant, etc. So he does not sort of pivot very easily from from certain you know values he has. So shout out to you, uh, Rochelle. And uh, that's definitely a question he asked me to ask you, which is share some insight with a well-meaning high integrity individual who's currently running a central bank in any one of the countries you mentioned or somewhere else on the continent, perhaps in one of your bigger markets, growth markets on the continent. How how should I think about crypto and and, and distributed ledger technologies and more so how should I think about um, this trend towards peer-to-peer trade? Well it's good to be cautious. It's good to be skeptical, especially in Africa. Skepticism is good. It keeps us alive, especially in this place that's rife with scams. So let's uh Okay, let's zoom out for a minute and uh, we're, let's realize that we're currently in the age of compliance, right? So the American SEC, the U.S. House Financial Committees, we've talked to all these people, right? And we've actually come to them first, right? And they really appreciate that because the only time they ever hear about cryptocurrencies is when someone gets scammed, right? Especially the whole ICO bubble, right? All these scams came in and that was their first impression of cryptocurrency. And now all these regulators all around the world are playing catch up. They're trying to understand what is this? How do we regulate this? How do we protect people, right? So Africa should not feel left behind because everyone else is just getting started. Now here's the amazing opportunity. Africa actually has the potential to lead all these regulators, right? And you don't have to, you know, put out some huge overarching regulation, right? You don't have to do that. All we have to do is extend the transparency that Bitcoin and blockchain technologies have created. Bitcoin is completely transparent. It's totally public. It's just anonymous, right? Every single transaction, anyone can see on the blockchain. As long as you know who controls the address, it becomes a completely transparent circulatory system of the world economy, right? If you think about that, that's kind of a central banker's wet dream, right? Was this total and complete transparency. So let's just extend that transparency out, right? So this peer-to-peer finance thing is happening. People are beginning to realize that they can trade anything they want using Bitcoin as a universal clearing layer, right? That pattern is only going to grow, especially in Africa. So what central banks can do, what governments can do is like, hey, let's put out a peer-to-peer license. If this guy here wants to sell and trade Bitcoin, he's got a guy in university and he's using it, you know, building a business out of it, cool. Let him, like, let's give him a license. Let him register with us. Let him, ta- let him pay his taxes. And let's make it like, let's, let's legitimize this. Let's regulate this. It's worked out beautifully in Japan and Korea. Why couldn't it work out here in Africa? And if Africa did that, it would lead the space and it would bring back the focus onto what this is all about, which is peer-to-peer finance. So I encourage the people to uh, look at peer-to-peer finance in a positive way. And if we really put more focus there, it'll move more Africans away from the mining scams, the speculation, the multi-level marketing, which is still wrecking havoc on people over here. So it's all about trans- education and transparency. So let's talk about an article that's trending within policy circles around the world, not just here on the continent. It's an article put out by the MIT Technology Review by Mike Orcutt. Um, it's called Once Hailed as Unhackable, Blockchains Are Now Getting Hacked. Um, the subheading is even more disturbing, which reads, more and more security holes are appearing in cryptocurrency and smart contract platforms, and some are fundamental to the way they were built. So this is definitely a, an article I recommend everyone reading and i have the i have simon dingle on the show to unpack it because he he takes exception to some of the um some of the uh, assertions made in this article i do get the sense that it's hard to argue now that you know again back to the trust thing back to the legitimate reasons why a reserve bank governor a policymaker a well-meaning sort of super integrous individual anywhere in the world never mind you know including on the african continent might be concerned about how well-equipped platforms like yours exchanges perhaps there's a growing trend to see you know to to vulnerabilities emerging in these spaces and of course if they're human beings behind them they have to be and i know the fundamentals of the blockchain are sound but how do we settle the nerves of of a world that's starting to to worry that there might be inherent infrastructural vulnerability in the system we're building Uh, i originally saw this article on twitter it was raised uh 
retweeted by a guy named Nouriel Rabini, which is a professor in Stern School of Business. And he's, and he's a massive Bitcoin hater, right? Oh, yeah. He is. But me and him, actually, we talk quite a bit. You know, it was like people were just attacking this guy nonstop in the beginning. I was like, hold on a second. This is not a dumb guy. This is a really, really smart guy. And I know he's hating hard here. But let's stop for a minute and let's look at his perspective. Because we're educated. We, you know, we're honest people. Everyone's perspectives should be entertained, especially people that know finance so well. So he makes a lot of good points, actually. And he was actually right about what happened in 2017 with the ICO scams, et cetera, and whatnot. And the truth is that smart contracts are inherently flawed. Like As a security model, you are basically putting a programming language into this blockchain, right? And once you give people the ability to write any code they want, right, anything can happen. And we saw that with the DAO hack on Ethereum, et cetera. So let's assume for a moment that all these new smart contract platforms are risky and they are and that's the absolute truth let's assume everything in that article is true okay fine we still have bitcoin right we still have this universal blockchain right that can act as a clearing layer for the people and it doesn't have a turning complete smart contracts language and that's by design satoshi nakamoto didn't put that in there because you don't want that kind of flexibility when it comes to your money right so when it comes to bitcoin what we need to worry about is personal security, right? And this is a huge thing that we see, especially in Africa. So you go to this website, amipone.com, uh, P-O-W-N-E-D.com. You type in your email and password. And I guarantee you, if you're in Africa, 95% of the time, hackers will have already have your email and password, and they can hack your email address. So this is what people have to realize. Use two-factor authentication, right? Forget about the securities of the blockchain. Bitcoin blockchain is absolutely secure. It's backed up with the computing power of the world's, like, it's more computing power than the world's top 500 supercomputers combined. You're not going to find any digital network more secure than that. And we have that. So let's just focus on that. All the rest, meh, forget about that. Now, let's focus on our own personal security. If you are, just, if you are opening up a wallet anywhere and you're just relying on a strong password in your email, you're going to lose everything. I'll tell you, and you deserve to lose everything, honestly. So use two-factor authentication. If you do that, and don't use SMS two-factor because that's easily hackable as well. Swim swapping is becoming more and more popular among hackers. Use app 2FA, like with Google Authenticator, etc. And the Paxful app that will be coming soon will also support that as well. If you do that, right? If you take good trade practices on peer-to-peer financial platforms like Paxful, like never release the Bitcoins until you've confirmed payment, etc. Never cancel a trade if you already extended payment. Never release early, etc. You'll absolutely be protected. It's the safest possible way to use your money in the world. And I say that with all confidence. So then what's your thought of the Lightning Network then? I don't know if I want to go there. You're not sure how much hate you want to garner on the internet. Oh, man, you don't know. It's like, uh, I don't even want to, oh, my goodness. You don't want them hacking your, 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 you don't want them hacking your platform. <laughs> oh, this is, a, this is a real quagmire. Okay, so I think, I think. A blockchain debacle. Okay, look, all right. So these second layer solutions like Lightning Network, they do have promise, right? For a lot of specific services, like a big uh, exchanges that work together, right? They can start moving volumes between each other. But for like retail merchant adoption, for uh, the kind of grassroots adoption that I was hoping for, that I got into Bitcoin for, it doesn't really make a lot of sense for that. Now, I'm not a super technical genius like uh, Vitalik Buterin or anything. I can't really comment on larger block sizes or anything like that. But at the end of the day, Bitcoin was created to help the little guy. The little guy does, you know, need to be able to send $2.50. That single mother in Venezuela, if she's buying $5 worth of Bitcoin is a huge thing for her, right? So now it can't really happen like uh, on the blockchain without something like a lightning network, right? Which is another layer of complexity, another layer of or vulnerability. Absolutely. It's another, I mean, it's, it's just a whole other sphere that we have to get into and start thinking around. I wish it didn't have to be the way. I wish it could have been simpler. But it's here right now and it has a lot of potential and we're, uh, we're going to explore the potential in the future as well. Profile the, the, 
you did some profiling of you know users of your platform you know as part of what we were talking about earlier sorry 50 cents is the average size and we do about 40 to 60,000 transactions a day which is more than every other peer-to-peer platform including local bitcoins combined profile that individual who who is that person on average do you think does your data crunching allow you to to have a solid sense of who that person is on on the continent and therefore set you up to target future consumers well, we focus on a lot of underbanked and completely unbanked peoples around the world, and we make our system easy enough for them to use, which is why the average size of the purchase is so small and why there's so many transactions. You know, Paxlo is over two and a half million users and it's growing rapidly, and that's without an app yet, right? So things haven't even begun. Uh, as far as like the demographics and uh, who these users are, that's not something we really look at. We really look at more about the use cases, like what problems do these people have that they're trying to solve, right? Really? You're not pr- approaching this the way Google or Amazon would? Not really. Not really. I, I don't think that's a good way to go. Uh, Why? I mean, you know, we can hire, a, we probably will hire some bean counters that will sit there and say, hey guys, look, you know, this is coming from here and this is coming from there, but I'm kind of old school. I just like getting on like uh, customer support and chatting with users and really understanding what they're doing and how they're doing it. And that's really the reason for our success. I don't want to get away from that and start you know, breaking things down into numbers and crunching things down into statistics. Uh, I think eventually that's a good thing to do and we will probably do that. But Also, you're playing for massive gains at the moment where I suppose in more mature you know, e-commerce, you know, people are playing for like marginal growth, right? Yeah, exactly. They're trying to eke out like, you know, uh, fractions of a percent across. But that's not how we think. I'm, I'm not that guy, you know. I'm not some industrial bean counter, right? We haven't even started this yet because we hardly have any information, right? Where every market that we go to, whether it's Ghana, South Africa, Venezuela, Colombia, whatever, Indonesia, India, we want to go there and we actually want to meet the people and see what their problems are. What are the limitations, right? Once we figure that out, we can help them f- solve the problems that they actually have and maybe show them new solutions for problems they didn't even think were problems, right? This is the key. We're still in this phase right now. We're, we're basically still learning. I mean, everything that we've learned, we've learned by our own users. They've taught us this, right? We haven't figured this stuff out by ourselves. The seven true use cases of cryptocurrency of Bitcoin, this is not something that magically popped out of my head. Users showed us this, right? So it's all about that. We're never going to break away from that. If I ever stop talking to the users and just start looking at graphs and data and spreadsheets all day, then just uh, shoot me, please, because that's not peer-to-peer finance. That's not what I got into this game for. You know, if you had a billion dollars of your own money set aside, you couldn't reinvest it in what you're doing right now, but you had to invest it in, um, in some form of regulation technology to support what you're doing, what would it be? Is there a company out there that exists or perhaps an area that you'd, you'd um, throw that billion and it has to be a billion? <laughs> um, so maybe it's a really audacious idea that you know would, would solve for a lot of issues that you're sensing right now. Something in the regulation technology space. It's a great question. Um, I approach everything from problems, right? And I look at the problems that people have. Like let's look at Africa, for example, or any emerging economies. There's no credit rating system in Africa. How do people get loans? How do they bring in money, right? Well, every fintech right now is solving for that, um, basically by milking everyone's mobile data and, and basically claiming that they're, they're doing everyone from the, the sort of uh, remote farmer to the everyday unbanked you know, vendor on the street a favor. So that's, that's currently what's going on. And that includes people who are, quote-unquote, lighting up Africa, or you know, just creating lines of credit and microfinance and everyone of that nature. Everyone claims to be solving that problem. I'm just sorry to butt in. No, it's great. I mean, everyone claims to be solving that problem, but to me, it just looks like a bunch of vapor. I haven't seen anything really adamant about that, and I, I don't think it's going to happen because people. It seems that what these companies are trying to do is they're trying to uh, build this framework on top of a structure that. It's kind of just out of their own minds, right? It doesn't mimic what's actually happening in the real world. But peer-to-peer finance does. Yeah, so the whole uh, you know, micro-lending, uh, it has to be built on top of a credit rating system, right? Which has to be built on top of a KYC system, right? Which most African countries don't have right, right? 
And KYC has to be built on top of a whole bunch of other fundamental technologies, right? And all of that has to be built on top of real use cases. And the problem is people are trying to build this like fifth layer on top of nothing, right? They have no foundation. They have no experience in peer-to-peer -peer finance. They don't know how people solve the problems. They don't even know what people's problems are. So I don't have a lot of faith in these things. So if I, I just add that I, I, I share that view, but also I just feel that these are all, most of the people who sort of ride this wagon are typically just, um, they're applying sort of Google thinking to, to how to, or even Facebook thinking to how to, to sort of scrape and monetize data and, 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 and aren't really solving for this whole impact narrative. But that's just me. It's not just you. I think Rudolf Steiner would agree with you. It's very mechanistic, right? I mean, they're reducing everything to machine data, and I don't think things work that way, especially when it comes to money. Money will teach you more about a people than anything else, and how people use money will teach you more about humanity than I think anything else. And that's the thing that's awed me, that this money business is, I mean, there's no business like the money business, man. Show business really cannot compete. You learn so much about the world, and it shows you, like, you, if you really want to like, jump down to the very deepest level of the rabbit hole, get into the money business. Really learn about what money actually is. If, you, if these like bean counters and machinists and technocrats actually took some time out of their day to talk to these people and see what their problems are, to understand their frustrations and see the lives they were living, they'd see the potential to actually solve these problems and they'd realize that their model is completely broken, right? We don't need more of this mechanistic thinking. We need the CEO that's going to be on the ground, talking to the people, putting his hands right into the product. We need that kind of mindset, you know, that hobbyist, entrepreneur mindset. And we need education. These are things that we need right now. Everything else is just sending us back. So again, the technology you would invest in to solve for the gap you see within sort of regu regulation tech? Honestly, I put it all into peer-to-peer -peer finance and education and just showing people like, hey, you don't have to be trapped in this little financial prison anymore. You're young, you're bright, you're educated, you're wealthy, right? The first thing we need to do is teach people, number one, what is money, right? Money's not gold, money's not silver, money's not oil, money's certainly not paper, money is work. If you're young, if you're ambitious, you're willing to work, you are already wealthy, right? Once people know this, it's extremely liberating. I mean, the company that I would invest in would educate people. It would re, like, reprogram them, especially in Africa, because so many Africans, they compare themselves to America and Europe, and they say, oh, yeah, we're third world. Like, that's really toxic thinking. That has to change. So the company I invest in is like, I don't know, some, <laughs> a completely like... Coursera meets Skillshare meets Code Academy meets actual schools being built <laughs> yeah exactly a company that's really gonna like invest in core generative gener generative infrastructure like so we have a plan to build 100 schools around africa and the emerging world we're on we've finished two schools already and it's more than just a school it's like a whole little complex right we have five wells we have water collection systems we have water storage systems irrigation systems we even have a little like uh, garden there we're going to build a clinic there as well we have solar panels schools for up to a thousand children we gave them uniforms books we educated the teachers paying them salaries and we eventually want to build a sports field as well right so this is like a template for a complex that we're building and we want to build these complexes all over the world eventually and the final goal is that hundredth school will be a school for gifted children, right? Like Professor Xavier style. Like this has always been a dream of mine, right? So this is something we have to do because it's the only thing that's actually going to allow Africa not just to be a place that is growing, you know, not just to be a place where that the population is growing, but to be a place that will grow exponentially within a single generation, right? Where people won't have to think of themselves anymore as third world, right? Because the truth is, Africa is ahead in so many ways, especially in cryptocurrency. The people of Africa have immense need for cryptocurrency, and they're actually leading the world in the true use cases of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And that, that's something to be proud of. Thank you so much for being on the African Tech Roundup, yeah? Thank you. Amazing questions. And I'm, I'm amazingly impressed with the people here in Africa. Some of the brightest minds I've met, some of the most entrepreneurial people and some of the most ingenious people. So the cheetahs are going to have a major victory over the hippos. <laughs> it's happening. <laughs>